Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to... And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode of CanadaLand is brought to you by Hover. Hover has over 400 domain extensions to choose from to help you brand yourself online. Get 10% off of your domain by going to hover.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is also brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient for 50% off of your first box. Visit hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and use the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. Jen Gerson of the National Post. Why, hello, Jesse Brown of Canada Land. Hello. We are going to talk today about the largest investigative journalistic collaboration in Canadian history and the shocking expose that resulted of a story that the CBC had broken two years earlier. We are also going to talk about why the Globe and Mail keeps telling us that taxing rich doctors is bad, bad, bad. We may have to talk about Harvey fucking Weinstein, and I want to talk with you about the very clever methods that CBC journalists have figured out uh, in terms of how to criticize CBC journalists on the CBC. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Tien Nguyen, Styles Bitchley, Angelique Davis, Thomas Paul, Robin Elliott, Sean Sedgwick, Wes Payne and Sarah Fletcher. 
Sarah, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I appreciate hearing more diverse voices on Canada land than I'm used to hearing in most forms of media. And because I think a strong and occasionally snarky press is a vital part of a healthy democracy. And this episode is brought to you by the Civic Atlas. Jen, this is an awesome thing that was made by Raymond Bissinger, who's uh, an excellent illustrator who actually designed our logo. He found these incredible old maps. There were these maps drawn between 1860 and 1920, and he's compiled them into this thing called the Civic Atlas, which is a collection of more than 350 illustrated panoramic bird's eye view maps of North American cities. And this is something that used to happen where a few hundred artists would travel through the continent and research and sketch and create these amazing maps. They're incredibly intricate and detailed. And originals are expensive and difficult to locate. Uh, What Raymond Bissinger has done with the Civic Atlas is he has rounded them up and created high quality reproductions that you can get very affordably printed out and shipped to you from theCivicAtlas.com. All 58 of the Canadian maps will be available for purchase at a one-day only Civic Atlas pop-up shop in Montreal. This is at Espace Pop, 5587 Avenue du Parc. I used to live on Park, 5587 Avenue du Parc in Montreal on this Saturday, October 14th from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. And the website, once again, is thecivicatlas.com. Saskatchewan's oil boom has brought prosperity to the province, but for others, it has brought fear, injury, and even death. At issue, wells and tanks which are leaking potentially hazardous levels of hydrogen sulfide, or H2S. Tonight, in a groundbreaking collaboration with the Toronto Star, National Observer, and four Canadian universities, we expose the secrecy surrounding this serious threat. Our chief investigative correspondent, Carolyn... Groundbreaking collaboration. Very cool-sounding thing, Jen, that we received a press release from the National Observer regarding this, this incredible collaboration between them, the National Observer, a missioner fellow, a journalistic fellow, Patty Sontag, the Toronto Star, Global News... For journalism schools, the corporate mapping project, whatever that is, this this really unprecedented, as they call it, unprecedented national investigation. Uh, this was very hyped in this press release. The news media is changing, and the National Observer has been at the forefront of pushing the boundaries of relevant and thought-provoking public policy journalism. The Toronto Star's headlines were very evocative. That rotten stench in the air, it's the smell of deadly gas and secrecy. So this was sold as not only this incredible investigation and a long-term investigative project, but like that they had uncovered something amazing here. Inside sources, never before seen documents, a rare glimpse into how decisions about industry are made behind closed doors, according to reporter Elizabeth McSheffrey. And they're touting their methods. They used freedom of information requests. They had whistleblowers, all leading to this stunning expose of how the energy industry in Saskatchewan knew about leakage of hydrogen sulfide, this deadly sour gas called the silent killer, and all the efforts that were taken to cover this up, exposed by this incredible journalistic collaboration that, in fact, was already exposed by the CBC in 2015. The well's over there, and the gas has come from the well this way, and the calves were found here dead. One was here. One was around here. Six of them 
dead. One was over here. The Engloths called in their vet for help. He examined the animals and could find no obvious cause of death. Then he smelled the sour gas coming from wells across the road. The Engloths said the smell was often very... So that's Jeff Leo uh, from... Saskatchewan CBC, CBC Saskatchewan reporting two years ago. Okay, so if you live in oil country, as I do, the issues around sour gas wells aren't a mystery, nor are they hidden. People generally know that older oil and gas wells tend to emit sulfur dioxide. You know, you generally know that the smell of rotten eggs is, is that's where it's coming from. It's not uncommon to run across this smell. Yes, there have absolutely been some tragedies. Michael Bunces is a worker from Saskatchewan, died while he was sort of fixing one of these oil and gas wells a couple of years ago. It was very, very sad. There was definitely some back and forth between uh, the oil and gas producers and the Saskatchewan government about what should be released and what shouldn't be released. I give this investigation, this unprecedented investigation, a lot of credit for um, uncovering some FOIP documents we hadn't had before, particularly I think one of the keystones of this investigation was a, a map from a, a slideshow showing particular hot spots within uh, southeast Saskatchewan about where some of the, the, the sour gas had, had been a particular problem and questions about whether or not they should release this map or not. Anyway, um, the long and the short of it is, is yes, CBC's been covering this for years. I, I, I believe I remember seeing stuff showing up in post-media papers about this for years. This isn't some magical issue that this investigation has just now uncovered. This has been an ongoing issue for years and years and years and years and years. And it is an issue. And, you know, I think also one of the names on this investigation is Mike D'Souza, who is a former post-media investigative reporter who is a brilliant environmental reporter. He's a great, great, great digger. Um, and he's uncovered all kinds of great stuff throughout his journalistic career. So, I mean, I, I don't want to undermine or denigrate the actual investigative work here. It, it was a really good piece, but there was nothing new about it. Uh, the only thing that was unprecedented about it was the amount of collaboration that went into it. That's about the sausage. It's not about the story. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, you, know, when, yeah. you know, it almost reminded me a bit of the Panama Papers stuff. Uh, you know, remember when the Panama Papers came out and... I think I remember vaguely remember like the entire front page of the Toronto Star talking about how important the Panama Papers were and almost nothing talking about what was in the Panama Papers and how the Panama Papers were going to completely revolutionize our understanding about how the wealthy hide money and all and it was going to, you know, crumble nation states and the oligarchs and all that sort of stuff. And like, what, two, two, three years later, nobody really talks about this anymore. <laughs> like, if you have to spend more time talking about how great your investigative journalism is than what you've actually uncovered through that investigative journalism, chances are the story is going to fall flat. And I think that this is actually a pretty good, good indicator of this because, I mean, this, this particular investigation over the sour gas wells didn't even hit my radar. I mean, like it, it, it honestly didn't. Not to say that there wasn't great work in them, but I have no issue working for a national paper in a regional location, you know, I, I would be pretty hypocritical to say that it, it would be a bad thing for Toronto to cover regional issues that have already been covered um, in the provinces, because, I mean, I do that all the time. It's really, really good when you have national organizations like the Globe and the Post and the Star and the National Observer taking stuff that has been reported on in a sort of piecemeal way in a regional location and repackaging it or representing it to a national audience, explaining to that national audience why it's important or advancing the story somehow. That's all really, really good. And it's very, very valuable. But if you're going to do that, you really should be giving credit to the local organizations that have, have done a lot of the uh, groundwork on it. 
And also, I think that you have to uh, not spend a lot of time tooting your own horn about it. <laughs> like, you're, you're just serving a role in the ecosystem at that point, and it's an important role, and, and it's great. But to me, if anything, that this investigation about sour gas has, has once again um, brought out to me is the absolute importance about re of regional CBC affiliates. Because as local reporting gets cut back to thinner and thinner levels, it's increasingly the local CBC affiliates that are picking up the slack on this stuff. And, um, you know, I think the CBC stories about the sour gas came out of very natural local on-the-ground reporting about the death of this industrial worker, Michael Bunce. You had a local death, they kept on digging, and they came up with lots of interesting stuff about it. And as a result, I mean, they believe the Saskatchewan government actually did create some changes to their policy as a result of that. And, you know, when you get rid of that and you start to rely more and more and more on Toronto and journalism students and, you know, a narrower and narrower group of media professionals in order to do that, you kind of lose a lot of the context and a lot of the background for the very important local stories that are happening. Yeah. I mean, I guess the biggest thing is the insult to CBC investigative reporter Jeff Leo and just completely kind of erasing him from the history of, of actually having broken the story. I think you could come away from this new investigation with the sense that there was this big cover-up. There were aspects of this that were covered up, and, and Jeff Leo uncovered it. Mm -hmm. But because of Jeff Leo's work, you know, as you say, like this has been recognized. And and uh, while we're on the topic of giving credit, I, I found out that this was originally Jeff Leo's work because of Tammy Roberts writing on rsask.ca. And she writes about how, like, you know, after Jeff Leo uncovered this, government said, well, this is a big and serious problem. It's our number one priority. There were still aspects of it. Like, they didn't need to oversell it the way that they did because they still did do some new work here. They pushed the ball forward yeah, and journalism did. is yeah, – Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and the point here is the journalism. I mean it's very progressive that they had this kind of unprecedented collaboration. But this collaboration didn't come immaculate conception. They were building on Jeff Leo's work. And so you know, Jeff Leo was able to kind of in his work I think allude to the existence of this PowerPoint slide that actually gave the map of where the sour gas deposits were in southeast Saskatchewan. Everyone knew – in southeast Saskatchewan, that there were these sour gas deposits. There are big but you didn't signs have... everywhere. You, you, you go into oil and gas yeah. country, there's giant signs saying H2S warning. Like, it's not a secret. <laughs> it's not a secret, but the, but the map itself was kept from the public. Now, what I didn't see was a lot of information about why that map was kept from the public. I mean, what was the logic behind that? I just, I saw a lot of sort of stuff that was taken from minutes of a meeting about, should we keep the map public? But I didn't actually get the government's explanation, and, and, and I was not able to therefore determine whether or not the government's explanation was valid or not about why that map was kept from the public. So I, 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 that, that I think was like, where, where's that information? The thing is like, just, I think fundamentally this comes down to the issue is that nobody, the readers don't give a fuck about your unprecedented collaboration. Readers don't <laughs> care about what you had to do to get the story. Like I, I remember that being drilled into me as a journalism student. You don't matter what the sufferings that you had to go through, the collaborations, the, the backroom deals, like nobody cares. What we care about is what you produce. What we care about is what you, what's the actual thing that you managed to uncover. And in this case, the map and the, the sort of um, chicanery behind it was interesting. It was a good story. I really wish I didn't have to read through 14 paragraphs about how unprecedented your collaboration was in order to get to it. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. No, I mean, look, I, I wouldn't be able to do this show if people didn't care how the sausage oh, gets oh, made. Okay, and but, I, but no, no, no. The people listening to your show are a narrow subset of the overall readership. 
Excuse me. I uh, I beg to differ. I, no, I think I, that our... I can't. We can't build you know entire massive national newspaper audiences trying to cater solely to your audience. You have a valuable, large, wonderful. I'm not trying to trash Candleland. I'm on. I'm on Candleland. But the, but the people who are really interested in how the sausage gets made are going to listen to Candleland, and that's why they're listening to you and me right now. But that's not the audience that the Global and the National Observer and the Toronto Star has to reach out to. We've got to reach out to a way broader audience than that. And that generally and, uh, speaking, yeah. that broader audience does not give a shit about how hard you worked on the story. Well, okay. Two points here. I know from having worked at uh, McLean's and other places what a big story is. Uh, th things have flipped, right? And, and often I'll have journalists come on the show and talk about a big investigation that they did, and they'll say afterwards, I got more response to my Canada Land version of that story where I just told the story of, how, of what I did than when it was in the paper. So we are seeing something where people want to experience long-form in-depth journalism and actually kind of the story of how it got made through a podcast form as opposed to reading a 10,000-word long read in a newspaper. It's, it's actually a really evocative way to tell these stories. Or I think you can do this in a collaborative way. Way. Whereas like, okay, I have my 10,000 long read story that's the actual story and then I can come on to Canada land and maybe give people a little bit of a background insider's take on how that happened. And those two pieces are complementary. But I don't think that you need, you need to bog down your actual findings with like the backstory of how you got the findings. You're, you're, you're just putting text in front of what matters. <laughs> <laughs> you look, you're old school, and I, I get that ethic of just like, what did you find? Just give me that. And, uh, you know, I, I think that a great way to tell people about what you found is to tell them how you found it. And I think that there's an appetite for that. But that's not the only thing that was happening here with what the National Observer did and the, and the Star, but mostly the Observer. And where I felt like, oh, there but for the grace of God, is that increasingly small outfits like the National Observer do have to toot their own horn. Candleland has to toot its own horn. We have to tell you this is what we did and this is how we did it because we're asking people to fund it. And I think it, there is a, a window of opportunity now where people are interested in that, especially when they uh, have buy-in because they're funding the production of the journalism. So they want to know why. And you also do like, you you can't just uh, sit back and be humble about your achievements. You do have to boast about it because you want people to invest in it. I think that the cautionary tale here for what the National Observer is that they over-promised and under-delivered. If you're going to talk that much about how unprecedented it was and what an amazing collaboration, then you you really have to deliver a big expose. And and that was the problem. Not so much that they overhyped it, but that when they actually got to the part of like, and here's what we found, it was a little bit of a like, well, and, you know, and, okay, and, you, and, and it had been, already been done. Yeah, that well, none of that, but I mean, that's that's why um, this huge, big, unprecedented collaboration kind of fell flat. Oh, and Jen, I, I need to push back on the Panama Papers. That's a whole different kind of thing because, yes, that was also a case of journalists talking too much about their process, and we didn't. I agree with you, but but to cast that story as a big nothing burger. Oh, is a I, huge but mistake. I didn't. No, I didn't cast it as a nothing burger. There were some interesting revelations that came out of the Panama Papers. Absolutely, no, we, we haven't done enough. We haven't. I mean, the fact that the, that 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 level of offshoring uh, and that level of tax cheating. I mean, we're talking about like small potatoes here. And that's the next thing I want to talk about is, okay, is, so what, is but, coverage. Okay, okay. Hindsight. Hindsight of the Panama Papers. What were the big, like, no, no I haven't done any back. I haven't refreshed my memory in any of this, but hindsight, just, just pulling out of the, the vagus of my memory. Um, what, like, okay, so there were a couple of associates of Putin's who were shuffling money around. And I vaguely remember some Canadian uh, offshoring some of their money and that's literally the only two things I vaguely remember about the Panama Papers. Please, please enlighten me. Without Googling, what, what do you remember of the Panama Papers that was so major? 
Well, I'll tell you, I think that this was actually a failure of of uh, the, the star and CBC in, in, in not making a bigger deal out of it because the CBC had already been doing incredible work looking at uh, Harvey Kishore and Dave Seglins and others had been doing work for a long time looking at this endemic pr- process uh, of uh, shielding massive amounts of Canadian wealth from taxation. And this whole conception of Canada as this overtaxed population. And here we find that the 1% of Canada are, are just like enjoying tax privileges and the CRA absolved them. They weren't going to go yeah, after them criminally. Out, that didn't come out of the Panama Papers specifically. Well, I, I, I think that those th- things are intertwined. No, they're and, not. And the no, no, no. We're, we're talking about a very specific thing. We're talking about, a, uh, about overhyping and underdelivering. Okay. So Please tell me what came out of the Panama Papers specifically that you remember as being a huge, 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 massive revelation. Well, that's just it. They withheld the names. They refused to name the wealthy people who were doing this. And, and, and then the story just fizzled out because of that. Well, so, so we, but we, we're admitting that the story fizzled out. Oh, yeah, the yeah, story, story fizzled, fizzled out. out. But okay, I, but that's I'm the only that, point I'm trying to make. I'm not saying that there wasn't legitimate interest story there or there weren't um, uh, very um, useful pieces of information or, that, or that, that interesting stories didn't come out of it. I'm just saying that in comparison to the amount of hyping that went into it, the story fizzled. No question. No question it fizzled. Okay. So I, that, and that's, that's the only reason why I'm drawing this as a comparison. Let's move on to our second topic, which is to, to go further into this thing. We don't know how to cover taxes. Uh, you know, like I, I think that, you know, this is like a big untold thing in Canada. And it's interesting that only when it comes up in policy, have you been following the coverage of the Liberals' new tax plan, especially as it's been presented in the Globe and Mail? Uh, not as specifically as it's been presented in the Globe and Mail, and I, I have been following it, uh, probably not as closely as I should have been. Would you agree with me that it's getting pilloried? Is that your impression? Yeah, I, I think that that's safe to say. I think it is being pilloried. And the criticisms are compatible with the Conservatives' assault on it, where they're, I think, wildly misrepresenting the practical implication like this is really you know 73 percent taxation on the dollar for small businesses is what the conservatives are telling us and as the team at commons covered like that's sort of like ludicrous because you would only get taxed to that level if you kept your money in tax shelters that will no longer be tax shelters and no one's going to do that and it's interesting to me to see the media lending support to that messaging and really trying to get people very very worried about new taxes that as far as i can understand have the greatest impact not on small businesses like mine, and I've been like calling my accountant about this, but on people who are explicitly setting up corporations to shield their very large salaries from taxation so they can sprinkle those salaries to their families in a tax dodge and also so that the income can accumulate in these corporate, they're fake corporations. They're not actually making anything. They're just there to keep earning money in the stock market at a different tax rate than if it was your personal income. And like, that's just not something that affects 99% of people. And yet we're told again and again that we need to be really upset about this and that this is going to come and eat our babies. It's one of these moments where I feel like I want to know, like, why is the globe crusading? You know, and I'm looking at like uh, headline after headline here. Demographics. <coughs> Demographics. Is it? Yeah. It's that the Globe and Mail's readership are the 1% who, who uh, like, it's like, Doctors, like, do they have that many doctors reading it? Like, is that, is that the only reason? I think that there is probably a, a, a sort of, um, both the Post and I would say the Globe have a general centrist, center-right position where, uh, you, you know, they're fundamentally skeptical about tax increases. I mean, I think that there is some fair debate as to whether or not you would call some of these things tax loopholes or whether or not you would call them just tax shelters 
or just a reasonable way of moving money around, you know, whether or not they should be there or not there. You know, these are all fair and interesting debates. However, you know, you are dealing with people who read these newspapers is that they're of a certain socioeconomic bracket that are more proportionally more likely to be affected by these sorts of changes. The Globe's openly said our, our audience is 100,000 K plus. I mean, you know. It's an interesting one because like closing these loopholes, which benefits everyone else in Canada to have these rich people taxed at a higher, you know, to not be able to avoid taxes the way that they are benefits everybody else. Well, does it or doesn't it? I mean, it benefits everybody else in the sense that you're redistributing their wealth. Yes, that's what I mean. But, but however, you know, if, if that redistribution comes at the expense of greater job growth or greater economic growth, it doesn't benefit everybody. So, I mean, there's different ways to think about it, I guess. Okay, well, let, let, let's not have the, the, like a very classic kind of taxation versus economic growth argument. I, I, there's arguments on both sides. But for our purposes here in discussing the media, it's kind of weird to me that like nobody is making the contrary argument. And I think it's political. Like the NDP can't say nice things about this because then the liberals are just eating their lunch. Oh, I think Stephen Gordon in, a, in our paper is pretty happily pointing out that, you know, people who think that they're middle class are not upper middle or in fact, upper middle class. I mean, I think I think that we it's really nobody pointing this out. because I, mean, I haven't really done that. All right. Research. All right. All right. You're going to find. OK, yeah, you, you could probably find somebody who's saying this. I, I guess what I I'm really I really think the National Post has proven itself to be, you know, the advocate of the working man. That's what that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> well, the, you know, uh, now that you guys have voted to unionize or have you. Perhaps we'll get on the side of labor. I don't know. You know what? I think that, that the pillorying of this new tax plan is is, is definitely I'll, I'll modify my argument to say that it is uh, overwhelming any positive press it's getting whatsoever. And it's also misinforming because I think that the idea that this is like a tax on all small businesses in your corner grocery is just like that's not true. And we're not doing the public any favors in letting that resound. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Jen, I'd like to thank a couple other sponsors, the first one being Hover, 
Building your online brand has never been more important. Buying a domain name for your passion should be the first and biggest step to building your personal brand online. A domain name tells your online community who you are and what you're passionate about, and Hover is the place to go. They've got the best customer support. They do not upsell you. They have Hover Connect, a feature that allows you to connect your domain name to many website builders with a few simple clicks. They have personalized email. We use Hover here at Candleland for email and for our domains, and it matches your domain further, and it supports your online identity. Hover has over 400 domain extensions to choose from. It's a lot of choices. If you're a designer, you can use the .design instead of .com or .biz. If you use .design, you're telling everybody what you do. It's a good idea. It helps you stand out and brand yourself online. The best part is the .design domains are on sale for the rest of this month for $5.99. That is 85% off your first year, half the price of a .com. New customers can even get an additional 10% off of any of the 400 plus domain extensions by going to hover.com slash CanadaLand. That is hover.com slash CanadaLand. And finally, Jen, I wanna thank HelloFresh. HelloFresh makes meal kits. They send them to your house. They are fresh, locally sourced ingredients for delicious recipes. And it takes 30 minutes to cook this stuff. They test this stuff. I've seen the kitchen. It's pretty cool. They make sure that it's kind of dummy proof and it always comes out tasty. I have tried these kits. They are kind of a lifesaver. They make four chores into one fun 30 minute thing that you do. You don't have to do the meal planning or go shopping. You don't have to throw out the excess ingredients that you didn't need. And if this has ever sounded interesting to anybody, if anybody out there has been Considering a meal kit service, HelloFresh is the meal kit you want in your kitchen and you can try it out for half off. So why not just go to hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and use the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. Jen, can we duly note some things? Yeah, I would like to duly note some of the stuff about the Harvey Weinstein sexual harassment case coming out. And I realize this is out of our scope because it's an American situation and it doesn't really affect Canadian audiences so much. I don't know. But I'm just like to, I would just like to point out that I'm really enjoying that in the face of revelations that this extremely powerful Hollywood producer who actively went out to uh, sabotage and destroy women who refused his utterly predatory sexual advances, somehow it always comes back to a story about the women. And I, I just, I really, I really think that that's so much fun to watch, believe me. Uh, it's about Hillary Clinton, because she posed in a photo with Weinstein and the Democrats took Weinstein's money. Somehow she has an obligation to come out and uniquely denounce this, because clearly she knew that this guy was a scumbag, even though she said she didn't. Or uh, um, Meryl Streep, this is Meryl Streep's fault, because why didn't Meryl Streep come out and denounce this dude? Or Gwyneth Paltrow or, you know, Angelina Jolie. These are very powerful Hollywood actresses. Surely they had a responsibility to come out and uh, denounce this predatory creep. Oh, and also I love how there's this great double standard where when women do come forward and go after abusers, all of a sudden we are living in a society where these poor benighted men get attacked by these women with no standard of proof and how all of our concepts of due process have gone out the window. But when stories do come out showing this, it's the women's fault for not coming forward. That's what's so great about sexual harassment. Do you feel like you're giving too much attention to the Trump trolls who everything is just uh, what Hillary Clinton should have done? But it's not just that. It's the people on the Facebook feeds who are like, I have real questions about Angelina Jolie. You know, like, why didn't you? Know, she was powerful. She is. She's famous. She's rich. Why did she choose to stay? Why did all these progressive women choose to stay, stay silent about Harvey Weinstein? 
And yeah. the answer for that is actually abundantly obvious. If you look at how this guy acted, the degree to which he manipulated people and the degree to which he attacked people, both legally and through the press. I mean, if actually, if I think there's one story that has been underreported in this, it's the way that the press itself has become complicit in silencing Harvey Weinstein's um, victims over the years. Absolutely, and and uh, the New York the New York Times itself the New York Times itself had the story in two thousand and four, and and Weinstein had it spiked. I think you're absolutely right that it, there is an unfair expectation that women have to carry this completely. I think the fact that none of the men in Hollywood who've been asked uh, have even even responded to journalists' comments about you know where they stand on this, or and, they've responded uh, in this little milk toast way. It's like, oh, I hope he gets help, and blah 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 blah. Fuck him. It's not just about Harvey Weinstein, you know. And Donahue tweeted uh, online, writer Anne Donahue, when did you meet? your Harvey Weinstein. I'll go first. I was a 17-year-old co-op student and he insisted on massaging my shoulders as I typed. That got retweeted over 5,000 times and woman after woman came forward with stories of similar encounters. So I think that when these stories get reported, finally, and God bless, like, you know, everything you're saying that's a prevent, like why people don't come forward, the heroism, like all, all their heroes, the, the the women who, I mean, uh, Ashley Judd and and Rose McGowan, like, uh, it, it, you just have to be in awe of the people who finally break that silence and come forward. It releases a lot of anger. I guess the only thing that I have to say, in contrast to what you're saying, is that my feeling of the general reasonable public sentiment is that everybody now recognizes that Weinstein is an absolute predator that he is unrehabilitatable and that whatever the Trump trolls want to turn in this, this into, it's just very clear that these women are telling the truth. And the, the other thing I would say that is promising about this is that I haven't seen one single idiotic fucking hot take about how these starlet ho- or Hollywood starlets were engaging in some kind of quid pro quo. Nobody's done that story. I mean, I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. And that's not the story, anyhow. It, it doesn't matter if if, if if somebody took his sick deal. That and, and that's not. But 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 the point I want to make, Jen, is that uh, this is at the right place right now, and I think that most people are blaming the right people. But imagine for a second that this story of all these women coming forward through the media becomes, and it may, a handful of women going to the police. And then there's a trial. And then their cases fall apart because their reputations are attacked on the stand. And then they lose. And then that becomes the defining. uh, I feel like once again, this is a case where the court of popular opinion that the media is providing more justice to the victims than the court's are equipped to provide. And I feel like I feel like this is a job for journalism and journalism did a good job finally on this one and I'd like to see a lot more. I'd like to see this happen in cases where it's not some super famous guy so you know that everyone has heard of before because you know there are lots of powerful people who are not famous uh, who do this kind of thing and I think that if the accusations meet a certain level that should be reportable. I agree. Duly noted. I want to duly note this Dove ad very quickly. It was a cause of much social media outrage, this really atrocious Dove ad where this beautiful black woman pulls up uh, her sweater through sort of a comic book sequential series of, of, of screen grabs to reveal a beautiful white woman. And it's Dove soap. And so this is, uh, you know, rightly pilloried by people saying, you know, this evokes a long history of soap ads that just uh, promise that the soap will wash the black away. Horribly racist. Dove didn't offer any kind of explanation whatsoever. And, I, you know, if you read the coverage of this, there was a Reuters story that ran in the CBC and another another Wire story that ran in the Star. You know, Canadian media picked this up. It sort of left you just with this question, like, what the hell were they thinking? 
And Dove says, you know, we missed the mark with this. We missed our target. And, and like, well, what was your target? What was the intended meaning of this ad? And I was left scratching my head as to like, did they not know how racist this ad was? Has anybody actually seen the full ad? Well, I have because, because Jen, I read this follow-up piece by the black model. Yes. Lola Ogunyemi, who wrote in The Guardian. Did you read her? her... I, I saw the headline, but I didn't read, read the actual piece. I'm just pulling that up now, actually. Okay, so what she wrote was that that was not the ad that she thought she was going to be in. And that's actually not the ad that they made. She was there with like 70 other models. And there is actually a video of three of them where she pulls up her sweater and there's uh, a white model. And then the white model pulls up her sweater and there's an Asian model. Mm -hmm. And there's like some long version of this where there's like dozens more. Yeah. So it's not it's not just the two women. It's it's dozens of women all pulling up their shirts to reveal each other, essentially. I don't know what that means, but but it certainly doesn't mean what this was taken to mean. And I'm not. Def I think the Dove ad was still incredibly stupid, but I, I I question the news coverage of it, where they're actually saying what was Dove thinking when anybody who was reporting this sh story should have known and been able to provide that context. You know, it, we, we, I don't think that it's our role to kind of just further inflame social media picking up this ad as presented by a series of screen grabs and not just explaining like, okay, what was this? I mean, maybe we still need to get very angry about this, but uh, I think, let's I think understand. I we're, we're falling into this trap of it's argumentation by de decontextualization, right? Instead of trying to understand the full context of what another person is saying and synthesize that and come up with a rebuttal and explain, okay, this is why this is wrong, or this is the weakness in your point. Instead, it becomes really, really easy to take a narrow, narrow sliver, a, a soundbite, a screen grab of an ad, even a 30 second clip of a two hour lecture, and then be like, look at how crazy and awful and terrible and racist and sexist and blah, 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 blah that person is in order to engage in this kind of outrage culture where people get clicks and likes and RTs based on their ability to call out, essentially. And what it's completely ignored or gotten rid of is this idea of actually wanting to understand where another person's coming from so that you can rebut them and, and challenge them, but challenge them from a position of synthesis and understanding. You know what? I have no problem with people called outrage culture or call out culture. I'm okay with calling things out and there's lots of stuff that we should be outraged about, but there's enough to get outraged about that we can know we can know what we're outraged by. We can have the full context. You know? Duly noted. Okay, finally, Jen, I want to talk about uh, the story that I thought had run its course, but it seems that it, it has not. And this is a story we talked about last week where uh, Jagmeet Singh, he had just won the NDP leadership. He was appearing on Power and Politics and Terry Malefsky, just sort of apropos of seemingly nothing. It seemed like a total non sequitur, launched into this sort of um, uh, accountability journalism mode. Will, will you denounce... Uh, the supposed terrorist behind the Air India bombing. What about putting up posters of Parma, the architect of the Air India bombing, as a martyr? Is that appropriate? And uh, we discussed this last week. And I, I think, you know, I kind of came to a place with it where I support Terry Mleski's right as a journalist and the need for him. Like, I think it's a fine area to question. Uh, I, I, I was less kind about, I don't think he gave his viewers any context. And I think there was a lot of reason to wonder, are you just asking this question because the guy's a Sikh or is there some greater connection? There's a bit of a more connection, but that wasn't explained. Uh, and, you know, there was, there was plenty of talk online. I bring this up now only because I was very surprised to see the CBC running a story NDP's Jagmeet Singh proving to be challenge for the media, Sikh activists say. Uh, so here's like 
Edmonton CBC actually questioning whether the media is equipped to handle somebody like Jagmeet Singh and pointing to a few different examples through Sikh activists bringing this up. And it's an interesting case because CBC is sort of uniquely ill-equipped to criticize its own content. CBC employees are not allowed to do so, and they have to ask permission before they come on shows like this or any other show. And finding CBC coverage, looking at CBC coverage is a very rare thing. But they found a way to do it. They found a way to do it by making this uh, this Sikh activist response into its own news story. And uh, I thought that was interesting. It's all content, baby. Um, no, I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, what I would point out is that, you know, you can criticize CBC's work, but it seems like they have to bring outside people in to criticize it for them. You know what I mean? Like you're not. Yeah, they need, the, yeah, they need sock puppets. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. But in, the, in this case, you had actual um, legitimate sick um, activists coming on to the CBC and explaining what they thought were, were the issues. And I actually don't have a problem with that. I think that if, if the CBC is criticized for something like this, it opens up some room for debate and it opens up for a conversation within the CBC and without about how we cover leaders who are also people of color and, 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 and have backgrounds that are non-traditional for Canadian leaders and what we're doing wrong and what we're doing right. I think that's fine. I think that's great. There's two things that I, I, I would just would point out about that particular segment. One is that I think that you're quite correct. If, if you haven't followed any of Terry Molesky's previous work on Sikh politics in Canada, um, and particularly on the Air India, India bombing, the questions that were posed to Jagmeetson were completely out of left field and they were presented without context. And the readers just, or sorry, the, the watchers just left looking at this weird eight minute segment going, what the hell was that? Like, why are you going after this guy, it makes no sense. And that, I think, was, was, was one of the key failures. If you go back and you watch, for example, the infamous, quote-unquote, samosa politics piece that Terry Molesky did, a lot of what Terry is doing in that piece, or trying to do, makes a lot more sense. But I do think that Mr. Singh has been, has been gotten a bit of a bad rap in at least one respect, and that is, in his interview with Terry Molesky, Mr. Singh actually does denounce terrorism. He denounces terrorism, as far as I can tell, quite, quite clearly. He denounces violence quite clearly, clearly. What he doesn't do is he doesn't blame Mr. Parmar for the uh, late Parmar. Mr. Tower Singh Parmar is, is, is the man who um, is allegedly behind the Air India bombings. And Jagmeet Singh basically says, well, yeah, of course I, I denounce terrorism, but we don't know for sure if Parmar was behind it. He was never convicted. That, I actually think, warrants a little bit of unpacking. And what I would like to see Singh have the opportunity to do is explain why he doesn't think Parmar deserves to be denounced and what his thinking and rationale is there. And I would like to give him that opportunity to unpack that in a non-gotcha kind of scenario. I mean, I think in writing would be a more effective way of doing that than, than on TV for this reason. Because uh, that actually raised my curiosity. I was like, okay, well, well, well why do you think that? Well, what's the background there? What, what's the logic that's going into that? That, I think, would be more valuable for me as a, as a voter and a, and a citizen than, you know, a gotcha moment where we go after a newly minted NDP leader because he won't denounce a poster for a tragedy that happened when I was one years old. Yeah, I mean, that, that's why I, I stopped short of saying, oh, that was totally out of line term. Lesky should not be, you know, asking these questions. Obviously, there was 
all sorts of background to this that we were not privy to. And I think that Jagmeet Singh's people knew that, which is why they wanted the questions in advance. Totally. And the fact that when he got there, he was unwilling to denounce got me curious about the story. It's good to be curious about these stories. It's good to go watch Samosa Politics, even though I wish that it wasn't called that. And I said there were some problems with Samosa Politics. We could deconstruct that for sure. So let's just be clear. Yeah. The piece itself has its problems problems too, and it led to a lawsuit. And But, you know, uh, there's obviously a history there that we could all benefit from knowing. But uh, by way of an introduction, interview, uh, meet your new NDP leader, and then it devolves into this. There's actually an a- aspect of it that's inexcusable. You know, just, just the association of this terrorist act with Singh uh, on that introductory interview, I think, is something that CBC has has, has yet to really own up to. And, and uh, you know, I think some of it has to do with Terry Molesky's prominence in the history of that place and the fact that he's a retiree who is coming back for double dipping on a story that he feels very close to. And it puts his colleagues in a tough position to criticize it. Um But yeah, let's find out more about it. I'd like to know more about what he has to say about it. Thanks, Jen. Thank you. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. You can email me. I am at jesse at canadalandshow.com and I read everything you send me. And we are on Twitter at Canada Land. Jen, where can people find you? Uh, Jen Gerson, Twitter. Find her there. If you like Canada Land on Facebook, then Canada Land's excellent news stories will find their way to your Facebook newsfeed. You can also read them at canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. We are just a few days away from the Canada Land live podcast taping with Daniel Dale at the Hot Docs Festival this Sunday, October 15th in Toronto. Tickets have been selling very briskly, but I am told that there are still some left. Check it out. Go and Google Hot Docs Podcast Festival. My producer this week is Kevin Sexton. Syndication of this program is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> 